0: Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org. thrive
1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today, Ari Wallach, is a futurist and the founder and executive director of Long Path Labs, a sought-after speaker on innovation and AI and the future of public policy. Ari Wallach's TED Talk on Long Path has been viewed by 2.6 million people and has been translated into 21 languages. His new book is Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. The book is listed in the Books We Love feature in the September-October issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Ari Wallach, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: It's our pleasure. So I don't usually read a book that starts with the way yours does, with a quote from the Talmud. (laughs) Right away, people are going, oh no, not the Talmud. But yes, a quote from the Talmud. I didn't ask you before we, we went on the air if you have a copy of the book in, in front of you. If you do, I'd love you to read this story. And if you don't, I can read it for you.
2: I have it. Here we go. One day, a man named Honey was walking along and saw a man planting a carob tree. Honey asked him, how many years will it take until it will bear fruit? He said to him, not for 70 years. Honey said to him, do you really believe you'll live another 70 years? The man answered, I found this world provided with carob trees, and as my ancestors planted them for me, so I too plant them for my descendants.
1: So how does this lead you into long path? I mean, this, this
2: is long path, right? You know, I, you you can't do a book with just a quote from the Talmud as much as I'd like to. I had to, you know, back end it with 200 more pages. Look, the the way... I was I talk about this a lot in the book but part of how I was raised goes into thinking about time in terms of kind of past present and future. We can get into that in a minute but really it's my tradition, my kind of the way I was raised Jewishly was you do what you do for the present but always with an eye towards the future and the future specifically the future that you want not just the future for the sake of it through a temporal lens but very much for making the world as you wish it to be, not just as it is, you know, my, my father was born in the mid nineteen twenties in a small ish kind of town in then Poland, and as a, as a teenager, uh, as World War Two started, the towns placed you know the Jews were placed into a ghetto. He eventually escaped and, and ended up joining the Jewish underground and. When I used to ask him, you know, what is it that kind of got you through it? Because he didn't like escape and then kind of flee. He stayed and fought for two and a half years and then was a, a Nazi hunter after the war. He said, what what got you through those nights where you ate snow or the roots of pine trees? He said, you know, for me, the the revenge was part of it because he lost his, almost his entire family. But really it was thinking about what I was, you know, he was, even though he was 17, 18, 19, he said it was really thinking about that I want to have a life one day you know, with a wife and with children and a home and everything that the Germans try to destroy and take away, I wanna actually have that. And so this, this vision of a kind of world to come for himself but also for the Jewish people was very much what got him through those very difficult years. So I, I, I open with this quote because at the end of the day when we think about the work we do in the present, both inner journey and outer journey for the world at large, It's good to do it for ourselves in the present, but if we really wanna see the world move in the direction that we think it should in our dreams, it's about recognizing that not everything's gonna happen in your lifespan, right? We have this thing called a lifespan bias. So therefore we have to think about the next generation and we have to plant those carob trees. And the book in many ways is about getting into a a mindset, especially during this very chaotic moment in human history, in in this arc, that has you constantly thinking about the actions that you take both you take them for the present tense but you're also planting carob trees whose shade you will never know because those were there for you and so i start with this quote cuz it's it's really the one that's been kind of i think in many ways kind of guided my father guided my mother also and and guides me in the work that i do as well
1: so i want to this is sort of in good jewish fashion i want to i'll i'll see your quote and raise you a quote yeah perfect <laughs> so In the book Avot de Rabbi Natan, he has another tree story. And in that book, he says, if you're planting a sapling and people come and tell you that the Messiah has arrived, first plant the tree and then go greet the Messiah. So how would you take this story into the long path mindset?
2: Look, the the... As I say in the book, the the future is not a noun. It's not a place. It's not a place in time. It's not a place on the planet. The, the future is a verb. It's something that we are continually making. And so, again, in my tradition, we talk about, you know, the the messianic moment or the or the Messiah, and even that I see as a verb, right? Even you know, it's it's interesting. I was just talking to a rabbi, as one does during the high holidays, about I you know, I sit down, I go what what Jewish holidays are there after the Messiah comes? Just out of curiosity. And he was saying, you know, I said, well, we still have the Sabbath. And He goes, well, no, we won't need the Sabbath. And I go, oh, so I guess Judaism goes away. He goes, no, we're, we're still going to have Purim. I said, why are we still going to have Purim? He goes, because in Purim, it's just kind of upside down holiday where everything kind of gets reversed. And part of this is, and he says in, in this reversal, it's because even if we think we're in this kind of perfect messianic time where everything is amazing, we still need to be recognizing that the universe is going to turn, it's going to expand, it's going to contract. And even in this most amazingness of times, there's still going to be work to do. And importantly, we have to kind of question our assumptions, right? Kind of Karl Popper said, there's no one has a monopoly on the truth. I think that's true. Even after the quote unquote Messiah comes with the messianic moment, we still have to always have to kind of have a, be a, have a pebble in our shoe to kind of check us even when we think things are amazing. So we have to keep that you, you finish planting the tree even if the messiah comes because even if the messiah comes like there's still going to be something right nothing the universe has shown us time and time again when we think it's near or at perfection it, it never is right that violates all these laws of uh, physics and probably even metaphysics so I, I hear that story about finish planting the tree and i say this fits in exactly with how i think about the work that we're doing now and the work to be done
1: yeah, I, I thought you'd say something similar. I, I think the challenge that you probably confront with long path is the notion that, there, no, there's an end. And the end is, the desire is to have the end in my lifetime. So, so I don't need long path thinking. I need, you know, because the Messiah is coming in my lifetime. Or if it's not the Messiah, then Elon Musk is going to get me off planet and I'm going to live in a nice condo on Mars, or if it's not that, then it's going to be, I forgot the guy who said it, it just went out of my head about just uploading my consciousness into the cloud. And Kurt that, Yeah. Yeah. Kurt Weil. So I'm going to upload my consciousness into the cloud. It, it's, it, it's kind of a, a, not only a radical short term thinking, because we think this is going to happen now, but it's a radical rejection of life, it seems to me, of, of this world. And and what the second story, both stories actually, but because the Messiah people often associate the Messiah with you know, other worldliness, though not really in Judaism, but because people do, the, the notion that, no, plant the tree first and deal with the Messiah second suggests that it's this world that matters. So when you talk about long path, I was thinking like Native Americans talk about, think seven generations uh-huh. in advance. How how far in advance do you, when you're planning, whatever whatever you know whatever you're wrestling with, whatever project you're working on, whatever thing you're you're considering doing, how far into the future do you look to get to understand whether this is a good idea or a bad idea?
2: Well, so you know, the, if we think of long path as this kind of applied mindset to help us. Navigate this this interregnum what i what I call intertidal between kind of the world as it is, this kind of the uh, enlightenment hyper rational thinking, and the kind of world to come, this kind of more of a kind of a ecosystemology quantum understanding of the world right we're we're not quite in that one yet, but the one that we, we were we were in for the past four hundred years isn't quite working, right We see this in hyper low levels of trust across all institutions, and so when we think about you know how far out to think in terms of the decisions to be made i want to i want to step back because some of those decisions look i i work with the united nations and we're thinking about climate refugees and we're you know we have to think 30 40 50 years out right but a lot of the decisions that we need to make aren't always going to be these large macro how do we move billions of people more into the northern hemisphere in a just equitable way That's so we have to put some years on that because and I talk about this a lot in the book, and this is where I've gotten some pushback because people want to hear about the kind of the grand plans. How do we get to Mars? How do we solve climate change and you know homelessness and poverty and the, you know, the big, kind of the big, wicked problems? And what I say is we have to, some of those are going to take decades, if not centuries, to kind of figure out in one way or another. But importantly for those of us, and by those of us, I mean probably 98% of those on, on the planet who aren't directly working on these issues day in and day out we still have to think about our actions at the very kind of micro level, you know, what Buckminster Fuller called TrimTab, how those impact the future, right? So part of the decisions that you were talking about are going to impact the future in a great deal, where how do we build the grid? What do we do about quantum computing and AI? But I argued that while those are important and of kind of existential importance, as important, if not more important, is how we treat other humans in the moment to moment. So when my, you know, before I came to record this podcast, my wife said, well, you know, I, I just made this dinner and it's going to get cold. I, you didn't tell me you were recording the podcast. How I inter, how in that split second, you know, I could, I could say, well, I have to do this. This is, uh, these are my podcasts. Uh, your dinner doesn't matter. I could go that way. Or I could go the other way where I kind of recognize the work she put into it, the shopping, the cooking, everything. And, and meet her in a much more human-to-human level. Why is that important? Well, one, that's what we should do. That's like the Menschy right thing to do. But in a kind of future-making way, how that interaction goes is then going to be how she will be with my kids when she sees them, and then how they're going to be with their friends when they're talking to them on on text, and so on and so forth. And so you see that your moment-to-moment actions and reactions to every decision, even if it doesn't seem as, you know, like you're thinking about, you know, how do you create power for 8 billion people, electrical power in the year 2038? And it's just as simple as like being told that dinner is ready before you're ready. That will have unbelievable ramifications because that happens at scale in billions of billions of interactions. So Longpath is both written for those who are working on those really big issues and it's helping them, because I'm hearing from them, I'm on their podcast, but also for those of us who aren't on those issues and who are trying to shape futures of worlds that we want and we're doing that by thinking about our actions being uh, heirlooms, but instead of the heirloom of a great piece of policy or a white paper, which is amazing, the heirloom is also an emotional heirloom. It's how we interact with each other that then creates the world that we want because the world, yes, it exists in the material plane. Don't get me wrong, but in the psychosocial emotional, that kind of fabric of reality of that we inhabit between the other humans that we interact with on a daily basis, we all make that. That's a decision every morning when we wake up. How we're going to interact and be is going to then create that world. And so it may sound for some folks, "Wow, this does that's that's not quantum, that's not AI, that's not biotech." You're right, but in some ways, how we even are with other people then impacts the people who are actually working on those problems. And I get into that in the book and saying, look, if you want to make change, yeah, you have to vote a certain way that makes align with your values. You, you, should, you should make consumer decisions based on that. But recognize that the kind of emotional construct and schema uh, and psychosocial schema of the world as it is right now it is ill. And if we want people to be able to make those better decisions, we have to start creating a kind of prefigurative way that world that we want to see, and that happens in those moment-to-moment actions.
1: So you, you came on the podcast, you didn't eat dinner, so what kind of karma have you just created for yourself and your family?
2: Well, look, so, you know, the, the, it's the way I handled the situation, I, I tried it. I said, this is amazing, because it is, because she's an amazing,
1: you know, chef. Well, you tried the food, you tasted it, yeah.
2: Tasted it. Look, what we all want is to, at the end of the day, we're all asking ourselves a very important question. Who am I and why am I here? And in the book, I'm trying to attempt to shift us to who are we and why are we here? Something much larger than the kind of individual egoic way of going about this. That being said, what we want to know is that as we go through this kind of depersonalized reality that we all kind of live in right now is, are we being seen? Are we being heard? Do we matter? It's the very thing that we want in every interaction that we have with other individuals. And if we remember, you know, at, at kind of a golden rule level, like in a certain way, like if that's how we all want to be seen and heard for our actions in one way or another, if we meet people at that level. So you try the food, you say it's amazing, you say thank you, you say, I'm sorry, I didn't, I did, sorry, we didn't talk about the scheduling for this. If you want, I would love for us to all eat, dinner together and we'll reheat it back up. I'm sorry about this. Then you're good. Then you're good. But if you react at an egoic level and say, well, it doesn't matter. This is, you know, these are the podcasts that I have to do for the book and this is what's important and you don't respect, then that's just, you know, and people do that and you, and you can do that. But I can tell you right, right now as someone who, who who used to do that a lot and still can be guilty of it, it's not going to build the relationship that you want with yourself and with your partner over the long haul because even though it seems silly that we're talking about this this dinner that I was kind of late to or kind of messed up on god willing this is my partner for another 40 or 50 years or 60 years who knows how life extension will work and so those small actions add up it's like a piggy bank you're either putting in or putting out and so again Yes, for those who are listening, who are working on these big issues, like we kind of keep working on the big issues. But for those of us who are trying to kind of wrestle with world making and futures making at a very kind of micro level, those interactions matter more than we realize because when they when you're when they're happening in the hundreds of millions at every given moment, then that actually ends up creating the kind of strata or the kind of the inter, interstitial tissue that creates the world as we know it.
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24-26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists, Learn more at eomega.org/thrive.
1: Yeah, I mean that totally makes sense to me. I mean, especially when you're talking about relationships, you're talking and you're not using these terms, but you, you have a choice. It's either zero sum or non-zero sum. A zero sum relationship being one where it's all about winning and getting my way. What you're calling the egoic you know way of approaching this, and then and the idea is to win, and the other person loses by definition. Whereas a non-zero relationship is all about maintaining the relationship so that, you know, it's what you said. You try to navigate the situations so that there's, I don't know if you want to say win-win, but it's no one actually loses.
2: And so what I'm arguing for in the book is that relationship, non-zero, you know, win-win relationship, not only in the moment, but doing so in the moment, that also connects you to future generations. That also becomes win-win between who we are now and who our descendants are going to be in the worlds that they're going to live in hundreds, if not thousands of years from now.
1: So let me ask about, because you've raised it a couple, couple of times, you know, who we are and, and why we're here. So, you know, we're, we're both Jews, we're both in the midst of the high holy days, and one of the things that we wrestle with during the period is this question of who we are and, and why we're here. The Bible gives us, the book of Genesis specifically, gives us two choices. In chapter one, humanity is created after everything else. We're literally an afterthought. The world is created, everything is doing fine, everything is thriving. And then the God character in Genesis one says, oh, let's create humankind in our image after our likeness. And there's nothing for them to do because everything is thriving. It says over and over again, it's good, it's good, it's working. So the only thing that you can do is you know, with, with superfluous people is to create a managerial class, which is what the story does. And people are, are told to, you know, be fruitful, multiply, and then have dominion over everything that has already been created, and none of which needs to be managed. None of it needs to be dominated. That's one possibility. And I think that's the dominant worldview in the West anyway. Genesis 2 gives us a completely different story. In Genesis 2... It tells us that nothing is, the the earth is barren. And it's barren because it's missing two things. It's missing water and it's missing people to serve, to work the, the ground. And so God in this story brings mist up from the earth and then takes the damp earth and creates the human being. And then the human being's mission is to, literally it says, to serve and to protect. And the word that's used for serve in Hebrew is the, same word we use, is, is the same word we use for worship. So somehow serving the earth, serving the long path, is an act of, it, it's a holy act of worship. My sense is, and you can jump in here, my sense is, is that the current mindset that your book is confronting is a Genesis 1 mindset. It's all about domination now. And what you're trying to move us toward in what you call the long path is this service mindset, and it's service in perpetuity you know long the long path what what's your your sense of that
2: I, mean, I can't argue with you i mean th- that's exactly what this is look the the issue is, and you know for, for another time, we can talk about the different ways that Judaism exists on the planet right now, but writ large there I, I will argue in Western society, there is a God. Shaped hole in most of us because for the enlightenment to work and the scientific method to work, and I'm thankful for them, we threw the baby out with the bathwater because we had to throw out God basically because we had to get rid of the capital T, capital C church, right? We needed to regain a sense of agency away from. That 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 the machinery that was the church in that way. So whereas we used to have an audience that we that we served, which was God in a sense, because then we decided, again, not necessarily for Jews, but you know, the afterlife, heaven or hell, we lost that in mostly Western society. And so now we're kind of adrift because we no longer know who we're in service to. And so you 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 hit the nail on the head. the attempt, my attempt, my my offering here in Long Path, one of one of many ways I think about this moment and how we navigate it is that if we are in service to future generations, an ongoing kind of perpetuity, that what that does is a, at a in a material sense, it ensures that they're allowed to flourish and even flourish even more. But in a, in a spiritual, psychological, emotional sense, it grounds us in the present because we now have something bigger to be a part of that we've been missing for quite some time. And I think humans in general prosper when there's a sense of meaning and purpose in their life that is that goes beyond them. And in many ways, I think we've been missing that because of the evisceration of the holy, right? In, in Western culture and in, in some even Eastern cultures as kind of the Western mindset has kind of dominated globally. And so long path is again, one of many ways of thinking about how can we be in service to something bigger than ourselves, especially for those who don't want that to be a quote-unquote God or a God figure. And what I'm doing here is saying, well... If you don't want to go in that direction, here's another way to think about it. Be in service for, to, to those that are going to come, which will number in the trillions if we do this correctly. And again, I don't, the numbers don't matter to me so much, as much as it matters that we're doing this with a sense of purpose for something bigger than ourselves. So that in the, so A, it hooks them up, but B, maybe more importantly, in an, almost in a kind of egoic, narcissistic way, it gives us a sense of grounding in the moment when we feel so ungrounded in general.
1: Yeah, makes total sense. Just want to make one quick comment, and actually two. First, in, in the Genesis stories, neither one of them is about serving the God,
0: mm-hmm. especially
1: in, in chapter two. It's it's about serving life. But more importantly, just on what you just said when you were you were talking, it made me think of, and if you have the book, turn to page 169, you have this, looks like a hand-drawn thing, though I don't really know if it is, but your long path megatrends. And you know, you're really talking a deeply spiritual transformation. But as I read this, and I'm looking it over again, you don't really make, uh, there is no spiritual category here. What What's your sense of long path megatrends when it comes to religion and, it co- or, and, and or spirituality?
2: I mean, look, that... I was fortunate enough to do work a couple of years ago with Pew Research in Washington, D.C., and I was working with their kind of the, re- the religion division, and they said, you know, the thing that stands out the most to them in all the polling that they've been doing for for years, if not decades, is the rise of this kind of spiritual but not religious cohort in America. And by the way, that usually happens to folks in their teens and their twenties, but then they kind of come back to mainstream religion. But they're seeing, especially with with Gen X and Gen Z and Y and Alpha, well, we're not totally there with Alpha yet, that they're not they're not coming back. And so, you know, the, the first mega trend I have is decline of traditional groups and organizations. That that's decline of kind of religious organizations in many ways. And so, look. I, I'm a futurist, but at heart I'm a strategist, right? I've been in policy and politics, and I'm always kind of thinking like, how do you, how do you go from A to B, whatever A is and whatever B is. And so the work of, you know, I came at to Long Path as a futurist and a strategist, right? Which is like <laughs> civilization and society is here at A. We need to get to B. I'm not going to define what B is, but I know it's a it's a protopia. It's better than what we have today. How are we going to do that and what is blocking us? And part of why the book kind of early on, I talk about this intertidal moment because I realized we're not talking about the moment we're in, in a much larger kind of macro historical human arc way. And so long past kind of connection to spirituality and religion is, is a lens to view our actions that is complementary to those who are religious or spiritual, but in no way meaning to be the end all be all. You should think about it as kind of like a jetpack for those who are already on the journey. And the jetpack isn't so that they go faster, it's so that they can go actually higher up and see the landscape in a much kind of broader perspective that allows them to see their actions, not just within their own lifespan, but their own actions as being dictated by generations that came before them, even tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of years, as well as their parents and grandparents. And also the ramifications of those actions and behaviors tens of thousands of generations from now And so Long Path is meant to be that kind of complementary to those, you know, many rivers, one ocean way of thinking about one's journey in this world.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I would would suggest... That as a futurist, you don't use the jetpack analogy because my big complaint about futurists is where yeah. the hell is my jetpack?
2: It's funny, you know, as I said <laughs> that, I was like, oh, I don't like that term because I actually have a slide in my talk that's like a jetpack and a monorail. But, yeah, you know, right. sometimes, my we need, sometimes we need that that mm. that visual to kind of help us. Okay. Go yeah, I mean, direction.
1: I knew what you meant. I just couldn't let it go. Yeah. So, So let me let me just take it one step further because I'm cognizant of the time. But you know, I've I've never worked for Pew, but I've I've done a lot of research. I have a book that talks about what Pew calls the nuns, you yep. know, people who don't identify with any specific religion. My sense was they they don't come back. That really they are outgrowing the religion, and that part of the 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 intertidal flux that we are in is that humanity. I'm, this is my hope, anyway. That humanity is outgrowing the the patriarchal religions of, you know, the tribalist and patriarchal religions and their misogynist religions of us versus them, and and they're hierarchical with men at the top and all this stuff, and and God is almost always masculine. We're really outgrowing those things and we're reclaiming the mystical, whether it's within a, a specific tradition or a more, a more maybe scientifically articulated sense of mysticism, Einstein's understanding of of the universe kind of thing but that the future and I, and I don't think it's such so far you know so so far off i think it's happening already that we're seeing a transformation in human spirituality that will i hope only grow over the the long path that leads us to what the mystics have been telling us like you said if you look back as well as forward what mystics have been telling us for thousands of years that the universe is a manifesting of a singular non-dual reality. I, you know, you can call it in Hebrew, we call it Chayut, aliveness, or you can call it Brahman or Tao or mother, you know, whatever you want to call it. And that every living thing or everything is a manifesting of that. And that we can know that we are part of that directly. And when we know that we can only act for the long path as you said earlier according to the golden and i like the the jewish articulation of the rule which is you know what is hateful to you don't do to somebody else Mm -hmm. so so my sense is that we are in a, 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 a state of spiritual flux and the hope is that it's going to lead in that direction does that speak to you at all? Does you have any, oh yeah, I can see that happening.
2: It's kind of my second book, but yes, I mean, no, I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, that, that is look long path. This book is, is, is meant to help us navigate this moment, but you're, you're seeing through the sentences that I've written in this book and that that's very much kind of. A, a significant component of I think the world that we are heading into. Now, that being said, there are, in an intertidal where we've kind of lost the official future and and the narrative and people are looking, we, we are it's not going to be so easy, right? We will see right. the rise of authoritarianism and fascism. We're seeing it right now. We oh, will yeah. see it even more so as a kind of loss of kind of spiritual meaning, purpose, and hope. Happy at the same time as the climate change emergency and crisis, we're going to go through some rough times. That being said, this does feel like, and every I know every generation says this, but this does feel like that kind of moment where things, much like Asimov and the Foundation, things can either go towards the light or towards the dark pretty quickly. And so, long path is about recognizing that there are big decisions. To be made in this moment, but it's those small decisions at the human level that will dictate, in many ways, which of those two points we get at in in the near to medium, really in the in the medium term. And I know it's more than just two endpoints. I don't like to be binary about it, but I agree that there is a a movement afoot towards leaving behind the. And, and I should have said that in, in, in the Pew work. Yes, they are not coming back. By the way, there's a movement towards that now. Sometimes that movement gets commodified and monetized. But we what we are seeing, and by the way, what we're seeing, we're seeing this not just in like Gen X and the young folks. We're really seeing this in people in their, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s who are who are questioning how they were raised and are really at the forefront of this kind of new spiritual awakening that they may have touched on, let's say, in the 60s or 70s, but for, for various reasons, it didn't didn't stick in that way. And we are moving into a moment. I think, 100% in agreement with you that we'll see the rise of not new religions, but new ways of connecting who we are, at the individual, to the macro and back again, that will lay foundations at a spiritual level, organized or not, that will be playing out for the next not just several decades, but several hundred years.
1: So it's nice to end on the same page. And I tell you, if you get the second book written or when you get the second book written, let us know because I'd love to talk to you about that. In the meantime, we'll let listeners know that they can read my book on this. <laughs> I'll put a commercial in called Perennial Wisdom for the Spiritually Independent. Read that while you're waiting for Ari's next book. Ari Wallach was our guest today. He's the author of Long Path, Becoming the Great Ancestors Our Future Needs. The book is listed in the Books We Love feature in the September-October issue of Spirituality Health Magazine. You can learn more about Ari's work at longpath.org. Ari Wallach, thank you so much for being with us on Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Spirituality Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker-Trupiano. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on your podcast app. And if you're not already a subscriber to Spirituality Health Magazine, please become one at SpiritualityHealth.com. Thanks for listening.